This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Well, everybody's working also, apparently, and obviously the weekend also just upon us. A very good song to get us into our discussion about that jobs report, which sort of came and everybody's like, okay, cool, and then moved on to doing whatever they're doing uh, right now, essentially not being worried about much of anything. Let's get into it with uh, Tendai Kapize. He is with us, Chief Economist for Lending Tree, back with us, I should say, in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. All right, so you see the number come across, you dig into it. What jumps out at you? What do we need to know about this jobs report? Yeah, I think the first thing you said was perfect, right? Everybody kind of looked at it and was like, okay, we're moving on. Um, If you look at the markets, they barely reacted, which kind of means it was kind of a Goldilocks uh, jobs report, Um, a little bit weaker than expected. And that weakness, when you look more underlying data, it does pose some causes for concern. Uh, So we did have downward revisions to the prior two months. Uh, So it's suggesting some deceleration in the labor market. And we also had uh, some weakness in the wage numbers And if you look, there's something called total earnings, where you look at the wages and the hours worked and the number of jobs created, and that actually dipped below 4% uh, for the first time in about two years. Uh, So that's some weakness in the underlying numbers, uh, but overall a decent report. No, but this is important when we look at average hourly earnings, um, because we have talked so much about how Uh, this economic cycle has been supported by consumers and certainly as of late. And so if wages for some reason are not expanding or going down, maybe consumers are going to feel or workers are going to feel like they have less money in their pocket, right? And they might not spend. That's Uh, part of the reason for our concern. Yeah, so that is the big risk. Um, But you do see some divergence where the lower wage workers are getting faster pay raises than the higher wage workers. And typically- Is that catch up at this point? um, I think some of it is catch up and some of it is also just the, you know, the tighter the labor market gets, it gets tighter at the lower end last, basically. So the end Um, of the cycle. Yeah. All right. So one of the things you pointed out, and Joe Weisenthal, uh, our markets editor and our colleague in broadcast, also pointed this out, uh, this notion that women now hold just a sliver more than the majority, 50.04% of non-farm payroll jobs. Help us understand why that may be from an economist's perspective. Yeah. Uh, well, I think a lot of it, at least at this stage, is a transformation in the economy, right? Mm-hmm. So the fastest growing sectors, one of them is healthcare. Uh, which there's, you know, much more women are employed in healthcare. I think it's upwards of 70% of people employed in healthcare, uh, health services, and education as well are women. And those are the fastest growing parts of the economy. The weaker parts of the economy, manufacturing, um, are kind of a lot of the labor intensive. The goods producing. Goods producing, the, exactly. Yeah. Uh, and those are very male heavy, the opposite way, where it's over 70% of men in those jobs. So women's industries are growing faster than men's industries. Um, and the mix is shifting towards women in the labor market. We're about 50.04% here, right? I mean, you you account for that 0.04%. (laughs) It's exactly, that's what I, yeah, exactly. Well, you know what I want to ask you? There's a story that came across um, Twitter, and it was talking about some uh, research, a new survey 
that was put out yesterday by the Pew Research Center and found that economic inequality is a big issue with voters. Uh, and Americans across the board today see income inequality as a bigger problem than illegal immigration. Uh, and so there's a political angle, of course, to that. But I do think about in income inequality. I'm glad to see the lower end of the jobs finally going up. You know, Jason, you've been talking about that Taco Bell story where, you know, managers, $100,000, I mean, that's a pretty substantial salary. It's good to see that. Are we seeing any improvement on that lower end where it's, you know, improving here to stay and going to continue to improve? I know yeah. New Year we saw some improvements in terms of minimum hours or minimum wages being paid, but I'm just curious what you're seeing when you look at that data. Yeah, so inequality is probably still trending in the wrong direction. Yeah. Uh, even though the percentage change at the lower end is higher, um, a smaller percentage change on a bigger dollar amount is a bigger dollar amount at the upper end. Uh, so we still have right. an increasing inequality. And the reason it's a challenge for the economy is that People who earn less or who have less savings uh, have a high propensity to spend, right? So if you give an extra dollar to somebody who's already spending their last dollar, they're going to spend that. But if you give an extra dollar to somebody who's saving, um, you know, their last $10, they're just going to save it. Uh, so it actually slows the growth in the economy. That's why inequality is a challenge. It actually reduces the potential growth of the economy and reduces um, actually wealth and earnings for everybody, including wealthy people. So fair to say you're a little cautious about the economy in, in 2020, the U.S. economy. How would you describe your outlook? Uh, I think, you know, this year is probably just kind of steady as it goes. Mm -hmm. um, I think I'm right. You know, I'm, I'm agreeing with kind of the Fed outlook where they expect growth around 2%. Uh, the challenge, though, and we saw that this week, is that you can have these shocks, right? Uh, so we had a shock that then dissipated, which was this kind of cr crisis with Iran. It's not completely over. We don't know what the next steps are. Uh, so you have these types of shocks uh, which can emerge out of nowhere. But barring some exogenous external shock, I think the economy, it kind of muddles along. Uh, we still have the same problems. I don't think the trade one phase deal is going to be anything meaningful for the economy. Uh, so we're still going to have a strong consumer given the jobs numbers we got today, right. but also still a weaker business sector, especially given CEO and CFO confidence numbers that also came out this week. Great stuff. Thank you really so good. much. And, and taking it above and beyond just today's uh, jobs data. Uh, Tendaye Kafizia, uh, he's chief economist at Lending Tree, uh, joining us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio on this Jobs Friday. Kafizia, right? Kafizia. I know. Yeah. yeah. I'm working on it. Yeah. It's <laughs> such a beautiful name. No sale. It is no sale. That's right. All of you cats can too. No sale. Grubhub say, wait a minute. Who said we're for sale? Leanna Baker is getting us up to speed on this. She is Deals Reporter at Bloomberg News. She's in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Deals so, Reporter, she runs the whole team. All right, you run She's the, in charge. I didn't know that, man. You got to tell me this. All right, so she runs the whole team. Um, we were all hot and heavy when we saw this. We're like, all right, you know, there's been, it feels like there is some need for some consolidation within the food app business. Uh, what's going on? Because Grubhub is saying, well, it's not us. When we saw the original report, we thought, okay, it's no surprise. The industry has been consolidating really hard in the UK this week, just eat and take away or merging, for example. But when we checked in with sources, it didn't seem to be uh, a deal that really was imminent or even in the works. And then uh, late yesterday, the company exclusively sent us a statement saying they're unequivocally not uh, pursuing a sale. But whenever a company says that, it does sort of raise your uh, your, your nose to see what does that mean? Could they have explored a sale before? Could there be something going on? Maybe they're going to buy something. We heard, uh, you know, and they said in their statement that they're working with advisors in an informal way on looking at what's out there. Okay. 
it could make sense that they look at some of their competitors, DoorDash, Postmates. These are two companies that have filed for IPOs. They haven't been able to go public yet. And some of them could be running out of money. DoorDash has money from SoftBank that's helping them. But this is an industry that really loses a lot of money. Grubhub is profitable. They're sort of the grandfather of the industry. Mm -hmm. They bought Seamless a few years ago. They IPO'd in 2014. But it's such a race to the bottom. Think of all the discounts we all get for all these services. And so stepping back even from the food service delivery uh, business, what does this tell us about sort of the state of deal making right now? I mean, you guys are looking across the entire spectrum. Not a lot of mega deals, uh, to say the least, so far in 2020. But is this indicative of the types of deals or the size of deals or anything that we're going to see? These are companies that are looking for solutions. It kind of reminds me a bit about WeWork when they were trying to shore up financing because they could an IPO and they were running out of money. This is a space, because it's so high growth but not making money, you need a solution. So for food delivery, a lot of analysts and bankers and sources think that consolidation is one way to cut costs and maybe make money. So that's why I think it makes sense to see deals in this space. But it's it's tough. You have so many private investors. You have CEOs who have big personalities who might even be founders. So it's hard to find that deal solution. And remember, Uber has their Uber Eats division, which also has is big, right. but loses a lot of money. But that, they're a player, too. And there's been speculation. Could they buy one of these players? Right. The other thing I'm thinking about, Lana, as you said, there's a lot of them that are struggling in terms of making a profit, right? So, you know, one unprofitable company plus another doesn't make a profitable company. Like, I think people are rethinking the dynamics of the of the business. We all like it, right? And from a consumer's perspective, we love it. But I do wonder if we're kind of thinking about the metrics that kind of explain this business. It's a great point, and that's why there's been mergers of private companies in recent yeah. years that aren't making money, because then you're still private, you do a merger, then maybe you try to get back on track, and then you IPO later. So that is a model. We are seeing some of these private deals. Even before Uber's IPO, they were buying you know, some smaller competitors. We could see that in food delivery. It'll be interesting to watch to see if all well, of these can stay in business. Not all of them have. So what's, so as running the deals team, so what do you do then? So what do you do with a story like this? Like, what are you now looking for? Because obviously there's something going on. When you see a company saying they're not exploring a sale, the first thing you think is activist investor. Their investors aren't happy. This company used to be worth $13 billion. It's now at $4 billion. The stock is off even on our story. So if you're an investor, you you want something to make the stock go up. A sale is an obvious outcome. So that's something we're watching. And analysts have speculated there could be some shareholders who aren't happy. Right. Wow. All right. Well, great reporting. Uh, always good to understand, especially because the rumors fly and you know it better than we do. And bankers try and talk deals up and you sort of wonder who's playing which side. Uh, always good to get a clear picture of what's going on. Leanna Baker uh, running the deals coverage here at Bloomberg in New York City. She was in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio. Anna. That's what we want to talk about, backing down. President Trump's strategy of initially escalating the U.S. relationship with Iran and then that country seemingly backing off to after an initial missile strike and maybe even the U.S. Uh, kind of backing off. It doesn't mean all is well. This story in the new issue of Bloomberg Business Week magazine, it's on newsstands and at Bloomberg.com. Writing it is economics editor Peter Coy. He joins us along with Jill Weber, Bloomberg Business Week editor, both in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio. Uh, you know, we were all in on our Iran, obviously, 
recently this week, and understandably so. And first, I want to actually ask you, Joel, because here you you guys do a weekly, and I just think about how do you approach this story, and what did you want to get out of this story? Well, we tried to just take it forward as much as we could, and, and obviously that's going to be a difficult one with something yeah. like this. But that's why Peter has um, done a style of reporting on this before, which is a little bit of game theory, and I thought that that was uh, the right way to approach this because if any lens um, can be used for something like this, a game theory lens seems like a fun one, right, Peter? Yeah, it, it lends itself fun to Fun one, that. I don't know if you can have fun in this <laughs> domain, Geopolitics, but, it's yeah. a game of chess. Yeah. Or uh, it's not just chess, uh, all kinds of you know, jujitsu kind of things. Like, what, what happens when one side escalates? The other side has two choices, either further escalate or de-escalate. And it's, it's a game of chicken, really. And uh, th- in this case, both sides back down. And that's a good thing. But that doesn't mean this is over. As you said, Carol, in your introduction, it could be that uh, Iran will find other ways to get back at the U.S. There's That is po- my, my uneducated hunch is like the, all the yeah, t- talk about cyber. Over. Cyber is yeah. going to be where this yeah. flares up. It's, yeah. it's going to be like an ongoing cyber. Yeah. But, but meanwhile, the JCPOA, the agreement that restricted Iran's nuclear ambitions, is pretty much gone now. And uh, Trump, in announcing the uh, actions against Iran, specifically said, as long as he's president, Iran is not going to have a nuclear weapon. So we, we have this, uh, whatever has happened in the short term has not dealt at all, in fact, possibly exacerbated the long-term problems. Yeah, right. I mean, the other thing that's gone seems to be, like, eventually U.S. troops are probably going to be out of Iraq, which is the thing that you kind of flick out ahead at. So if too, that right? happens, right, uh, I, I quote Anthony Cordesman from the Center for Strategic International Studies saying he doesn't want to predict what's going to happen, but if it did so happen that this caused a U.S. to pull out of Iraq, in effect, it would give a, a posthumous victory to Soleimani. Right. Well, there'll be this incredible power vacuum, right? And then you wonder, okay, if the U.S. isn't there, who fills it? Well, and right? it most likely would be Iran, yes. I mean, the other thing that game theory gets even trickier here is around the unpredictability, candidly, of the U.S. president. And you point out in your piece this notion of, I mean, the one major mistake it feels like everyone can point to is this idea of the president tweeting that, the U.S. would attack cultural sites right. that even people within the administration uh, have said, no, 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 we're not going to do that, right. or we can't do that, or it would be a breach of international law, etc." That unpredictability, I would think, makes game theory even more complicated. In, you know, in there regard. is a strategy in game theory which is to be unpredictable. Yeah, fair point, good. Uh, and sometimes people will look at Trump and say, that man is a genius, the way he... He uh, keeps people on their toes by being unpredictable, and then others will say, "Are you kidding? That's not that's not genius. That's just his personality, uh, and it may work at times. And I think it has worked at times. Other times, it can it can unsettle allies, for example, and cause uh, miscalculations by foes." Well, what's interesting here, though, is how well the, his decision in this instance has played with his base. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Like he knows exactly what his base is. And even though he's always said one thing, then he doesn't want to get the U.S. involved in foreign conflicts like a swift, uh, decisive attack like this was exactly what they want. It's over quickly. Yeah. Yeah. And and didn't have any casualties on the American side in the ensuing fallout. Which is remarkable. Right. One thing I love in your story, and I know I mentioned this to you earlier in the week, Peter, is you say 
So here you have an unpredictable president, right, in terms of sometimes strategy. And then you've got a foe. You said, how do you fight a foe who pokes and prods using asymmetric warfare, right? Right? It's also unpredictable in some way. So here you have essentially two unpredictable folks. And it is like, okay, do they they escalate or do they not? And so, like, look at historical precedent. Look at uh, Richard Nixon in 1970 in Vietnam. The North Vietnamese were... uh, the same kind of poking, prodding, weaker enemy mm-hmm. that nevertheless managed to often get the best of the United States. And Nixon said he, the United States was at risk of becoming a pitiful, helpless giant. So Trump does not want that to happen. Another precedent is Israel in um, the Gaza Strip, where uh, the Gaza, the Hamas was sending missiles to Ashdod, Ashkelon cities, and uh, not too far from Tel Aviv, and and Netanyahu just kind of went ballistic, <laughs> not literally, but he yeah. started like invading Gaza, and a thousand uh, Palestinians, more than that, were killed. Zippy Livni, the foreign minister at the time, said, uh, "You know, Israel is not the kind of country you can do that to. We'll go crazy, and that's a good thing." So, you want to sometimes you want to send a signal to your enemy that you are going to not just react, but overreact. I'm not going to be proportional, folks. Right. I'm going to shock and awe. That'll stop them from doing the thing in the first place. So it can be a strategy. I'm not saying it always works, but it's also not true that it never works. Well, And as you point out in the lead of your story, I mean, read the art of the deal, and that's partially... (laughs) That's uh, Trump. That is Trump's strategy, for sure. All right, so Joel Weber, where do you go in this story from here? You don't have to give us the secret sauce completely, but play this out. I I kind of uh, tip my hand a little bit. I think the another element of the story that we had in the issue is about how Iran does wage cyber war. Yeah. And it's a really interesting uh, timeline that attributes various things to Iran in different ways. And it gives you a sense of what the toolbox for Iran looks like. And it's really a difficult thing to defend against. Uh, and it's not one that we're, the U.S. specifically is, is very well prepared for because the vulnerabilities are sort of endless. So if, you're, if that's a choke point that Iran wants to exploit, um, it could prove very painful, as somebody like Adelson has actually experienced, which is the first attributed attack on sure. a U.S. company by sure. Iranian forces uh, a number of years ago. And, yeah. and it was expensive and painful. Uh, Peter, did that come up with any of the sources that you talked to? Not in the kind of specifics you're talking about. People just said, yeah, asymmetric warfare, that's obviously a button they can push. And part of it is the advantage of that is the plausible deniability um, that Iran has played that game using proxy forces, uh, the Houthis in Yemen and and, and elsewhere yeah. in Syria and so on. But um, obviously that also goes both ways. The U.S. is pretty good at these measures too. Yes. So, yeah. Yeah. Hence, hence why you know I think that this is an interesting sandbox to explore. And Absolutely. hence, I don't think it's over. No comment. Yeah. But yeah. I'm yeah. guessing not. All well, right. It's a great piece, and yeah. definitely check it out in this latest edition. I always like when. Uh, Peter Coy like pops up in other places other than the uh, economic section. So smart. All right, Peter Coy, thank you so much. Economics editor for Bloomberg Business Week, Joel Weber, the editor of Bloomberg Business Week. Have a great weekend, both of you. All right, so let's talk a little bit more about the big story of the day, the thread that we are pulling throughout this episode of Bloomberg Business Week. It's Jobs Day. What does it mean going forward for the economy? 
We're going to talk about trade. We're going to talk about a lot more with Chris Liu. Delighted to have him back with us. Senior fellow down at the University of Virginia Miller Center. He's also, of course, former Deputy Secretary of Labor under President Obama. He joins us on the phone from Charlottesville, Virginia. Seville, they call it down that way. Chris, great to have you with us. Always fun to be on. All right. So break this down for us because I feel like the market certainly reacted with the technical term I think is meh uh, and basically was like sort of moved on to whatever they were thinking about for the weekend, maybe the NFL playoffs or something. But what do you make of it? You understand these numbers yeah. from many different perspectives. What do you what's your takeaway? Um, look, it. It's always good not to read too much into one jobs report, and I think there was probably a little too much enthusiasm after the November report, which I think was 266,000. So this month, I think when you average the two together, that probably gives you kind of a better sense of where the jobs, um, where where jobs are in this country. I think it's fair to say this was disappointing, uh, and I think it's fair to say that when you look at 2019 compared to 2018, uh, the jobs clearly are slowing down. And I think what concerns me is when I start to look into some of the different sectors, um, you know, manufacturing is down, uh, and I think that is, you know, emblematic of the manufacturing recession we're having here and probably around the world. Um, I was also kind of struck by the retail number. Uh, retail was up 41,000, and I don't think you all know this better than I do. I don't think most people think the retail sector is particularly strong. So yeah, not crushing it right this now. Month, yeah, that, you know, while while that's a positive number, it sort of stands out as an anomaly, and it sort of is head scratching and makes you wonder: Can you really sustain that? And you know, when I look at you know whether it's Pier One, Walgreens, Macy's closing stores. Um, so you know, going forward. Uh, it's slowing. It's not slowing as much as I think some people thought earlier in the year. And, you know, it, at this point in an economic expansion, 145,000 jobs uh, is pretty good. So, okay. You know, what's interesting, Chris, is when I think about the expansion, here we are, what, 10, 11 years uh, and yeah. counting. Uh, I do wonder, though, you know, could we continue to kind of move along with this kind of job creation? Because I do feel like we've had strong months and then we've had some months where there's some weakness and we begin to wonder, okay, wait, this isn't where we should be uh, at this game, you know, at this point in the cycle. Um, I don't know. What what can you kind of glean from this about what it tells us kind of longer term about maybe what's yeah. next for the U.S. economy and the U.S. labor market? Yeah, I mean, there's a couple of interesting things. I mean, you know, wages are were actually sort of disappointing as well. Right. That was, I think, 2.9%. And I think most people thought that was going to be higher. And I think most people think, again, when we sort of think generally about how labor markets work, that when you're at 3.5% unemployment for a sustained period of time, wages would be higher. So that's kind of head-scratching. And then also when you look at labor force participation, which seems sort of stuck at 63%, what that says to me is that you're really not taking people off the sidelines who haven't been working. So when you put all that together, um, it's hard to sort of see how much longer this um, economic expansion, which is, you know, historically long, how much longer uh, it can be sustained. Now, that doesn't mean we're going to go into a recession, but we may just kind of be at middling uh, job growth for the next year or so. All right. So, Chris, as we look ahead to next week, big Chinese delegation coming to Washington just up the road from you. What do you make of this latest sort of iteration or latest step uh, in the trade war? How important is it versus symbolic? You know, I think it's a little bit of both. I mean, I think it's symbolic in the sense that uh, we've we've sort of put, you know, a ceasefire or temporary ceasefire 
uh, in terms of escalating. That's probably not unlike what we're, what's happening in Iran right now. Um, but it doesn't really solve a lot of the fundamental problems and, and disputes that the two countries have. Uh, it seems like most of the really difficult issues on, you know, for instance, intellectual property protection or access to Chinese markets have essentially been pushed down the road. Um, it's also sort of, uh, you know, nobody can quite get a sense of, um, you know, the president says China's going to purchase, you know, $40 billion, $50 billion of uh, U.S. farm products. Uh, most people think that's not really possible, and curiously, the Chinese haven't really committed to that one way or another. So, um, you know, look, we're, it, it, the trade war isn't escalating, but it doesn't seem like we've resolved the underlying disputes. Right. I'm just thinking, you know, I'm in the White House, and what are you thinking? Just got about 40 seconds, and then we're going to bring you back here. Though, you know, you've got the trade situation, obviously, and this is going to be a big focal point next week. Jobs, though, ultimately, you want to make sure, especially within a re-election coming up, right, that the economy continues to grow jobs at what level is necessary, you know, to kind of make yourself feel comfortable about re-election. Just kind of quickly, Chris, if you could. You know, about 100,000 is what you need to keep the uh, unemployment rate from going up. But I'm not sure if we got 100,000, that would be enough uh, for the president politically. That's not what he, he wants more than that. Right. Still with us is Chris Liu, former Deputy Secretary of Labor under the Obama administration, now a senior fellow at the University of Virginia Miller Center, on the phone from Charlottesville, uh, Virginia. And Chris, you wrote a book um, that is called Triumphs and Tragedies of the Modern Presidency, uh, co-wrote it. Case Modern Congress. Mo <laughs> oh, did I say it wrong? Uh, yes, the modern it? Congress. Oh, yes, 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 yes. And we can, yeah, exactly. Sorry, modern forgive Congress. me, Kivy. Okay, I was looking at something else. But I do wonder about when you look, think about the modern Congress and how lawmakers yeah. work together specifically to kind of shape policy, think about our role, not just in the United States, but also abroad. And I do think about how do we get Congress back together, both sides of the aisle, to think about our position, not just here at home, but really abroad, which is important when there's so many issues out there that affect us all. Yeah. Wow. Uh, that's a big question that I'm not sure we could answer in the time you have. Uh, I think bipartisanship really is at a uh, is at a scarcity right now, and it's unfortunate because it's not just our leadership around the world, but it's trying to tackle difficult issues at home, whether it's infrastructure, immigration, you know, climate change. And, you know, we haven't had uh, the most productive uh, last year um, in terms of bipartisanship, and I don't really expect much going forward, um, given that we're in election year. So I think, you know, we're, we're basically at gridlock. Um, here in Congress. And, you know, look, that's not the worst thing in the world. I mean, you know, you've got states and cities who are taking action on lots of issues. And, um, you know, at, at, at the next point in which we have kind of a strong, you know, majority in, you know, both houses of Congress that, that you know, um, the same party as the president, you know, you'll probably see kind of a, you know, spurt of action. And then we'll kind of go back into gridlock again for a while. Hmm. Well, and I guess to that point, Chris, I mean, is this, having studied the history, is this just a cycle that we have to go through? Because, of course, everybody in every generation says this time it's different. Yeah. But I do wonder about your perspective, especially yeah. having the, I dare say, sort of luxury now, you know, to yeah. sort of be at a place where you can't think about these things. You're talking to students about it. You're talking to your colleagues. Yeah. What, what do you make of that? Well, you know, my former White House colleague, Larry Summers, wrote a piece a couple of years ago where he basically argued that if you look at the history of, you know, recent politics, um, you know, it's basically gridlock. 
Um, and you'll have brief periods of time when, um, you know, one party controls the presidency and Congress, and then a lot of stuff happens. You know, you can go back to the late 60s and the Great Society. Um, to some extent, you could sort of look at the Reagan Revolution, although he didn't control the House. Um, the first couple years of the Obama administration, maybe the first year of the Trump administration. Um, and, and his view is, yeah, that at some level is sort of depressing. On the other level, uh, it's sort of as it should be. You kind yeah. of need a big supermajority of people who want change in one direction uh, in order for Congress to move. Um, and essentially, status quo is, you know, not the worst thing in the world. I think where I disagree with Larry is that that basically works for a lot of issues in this country. But when you look at big sort of structural problems like climate change, you know, I don't think we can afford to kind of punt that one down the road until we get a one party in control anymore. And, you know, even something like infrastructure, I mean, it doesn't take much to drive around this country or go to airports to see that we really need to make an investment. And you would think that would be sort of the least offensive issue right now, and yet we still can't seem to get that done. It was so, it was so funny. As you were saying climate change, I was writing climate change, and I was you know then going to go on to like kind of inequalities that we have here that just seem right. to get worse and worse. And I do think about you know the power vacu- vacuums that are being created, Chris, globally. And, and is that stuff, I don't know, you, you understand, you've worked in all three branches of the government. I mean, how quickly can things maybe change under a different administration, under new lawmakers? How quickly can that happen? Well, I, I, I think they can. I mean, I think, you know, during the period of time when I served for President Obama, you saw those first two years, 2009-2010, um, it's not only an $800 billion stimulus, it's Dodd-Frank, it's the Affordable Care Act. You can do big things, uh, but then you'll essentially have the next six years of the Obama administration where the action tends to be much more incremental. It goes through regulatory change. And the unfortunate part with changing regulations is that those can be undone by a next administration, as we're finding out. So, but it is, it, it, I think it speaks to sort of broader problems in our country right now, where the American people can't really understand long-term risks like climate change. Um, and I think, nor can they sort of understand, um, you know, the, America's place in the world and how all these things fit together. And, you know, sadly, you know, the 24-7 news cycle doesn't necessarily lend itself to kind of thoughtful discussions of these issues either. Right. All right. About 45 seconds left. Give us a note of optimism, maybe, that you're drawing <laughs> from students you work with, colleagues down the, there at uh, University of Virginia. You know, what I've seen is on both sides of the aisle, this incredible level of citizenship, citizen engagement. Mm-hmm. I think people understand finally now that elections matter. And it's one of the reasons why in the last couple of elections you see such high voter participation. And that's a good thing. Right. All right. We're going to leave it there. Thank you so much. Chris Liu, senior fellow at the University of Virginia Miller Center. He's a former deputy secretary of labor under President Obama. We should mention his aforementioned colleague, Larry Summers, former U.S. Treasury Secretary. I'm with David Weston this night. He is a featured player on the reboot, the new and improved Bloomberg version of Wall Street Week, debuting tonight, as you say, 6 p.m tonight with David Weston. And I just want to remind everybody, Chris Liu's book, Triumphs and Tragedies of the Modern Congress, forgive me, I misread something, Case Studies in Legislative Leadership. But I do think uh, it's uh, a great way to kind of understand how uh, lawmakers can work together and get things done. And I do think today we maybe underestimate or underappreciate the history and the importance of the Congress. Candidly, you know, these co-equal branches of government gets lost sometimes in the shuffle. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I wanna drive. Just drive, baby.
It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close. Back with us is J.J. Kinahan. He's chief market strategist at TD Ameritrade. Firm has $1.3 trillion in assets under management. Uh, they are based in Chicago. J.J. on the road and joining us from New Orleans on this Friday. Hey, nice to have you here. Happy New Year. Uh, happy New Year, Carol. Great to be with you guys as always. How are you? I'm doing okay. So what are you hearing from your clients? Um, it was quite a first full week here in 2020 in terms of the news flow, but markets seem to take most of it in stride, even hitting uh, some records here. Um, what, if anything, has changed in terms of market sentiment and market uh, well, thoughts? Yeah, I, I think, you know, it's interesting. One of the things we had the news to start the week was like, you know, don't change your thesis based on one or two things. Let, let, let's see how the market plays out. What's interesting to It's me, not, though, JJ, I can at, I just jump in? It's not just one or two things. I mean, these were big things. We're talking about missiles. We're talking about Iran. We're talking about, I mean, there's things and then there's... I, I agree, <laughs> but they, they were big things, but it faded rather quickly. That said, I don't know that, you know, as you know, these things tend to repeat themselves, so I, I'm not saying it's necessarily all done and nobody should worry anymore, but in the short term... Looking at bonds, looking at VIX, looking at, you know, gold, it looks like people have at least put that fear aside for now. With that said, one of the interesting things I thought was I look at our clients' behavior at the uh, in, in December and heading into the new year. And the most interesting thing is in the, the month of December is the most exposure to the market our clients took all year long. Still historically not a really high level because... Uh, you know, for 2019, there was the tariff fear and other fears hanging over things, so people weren't super aggressive. But as the market hit new highs, people started to not only buy more equities, they bought more ETFs, they bought more fixed income. They basically bought more of everything. Hmm. But I do find it a quite a conundrum, so to speak, when they're buying fixed income and equities at the same time. All right. So, JJ, as we look ahead hey, next week, uh, earnings, it's all happening. Yeah. The big banks are out of the gate first. What do you like when you look at the, you know, sort of those big financial names? We're going to hear from JPM and Goldman, I believe. Yes. And actually, you know, that's an area I think for 2020 can be uh, a very nice place to be. And the reason I think that on these big banks is because they've had every headwind in the world, and yet they continue to fight them off. They've become amazing at trimming expenses, maximizing profits where they can. And and that's, in a, you know, terrible, let's face it, it's been a terrible yeah. environment interest rate-wise. So we're, we're in an, an environment now where it looks like, at the very least, they may get a stable environment. If we can continue to see the numbers coming in in a positive way, you know, I know today's employment report was uh, maybe a little disappointing, but overall the trend is that the numbers have been pretty good. You know, it can at least keep the interest rate risk away, and maybe who knows at the end of the year if we even start having a conversation about higher rates. So I do think that uh, if, if the CEOs can tell us that they see a pretty good year coming along, and most importantly, the, the, the P.E. ratio, as I know you guys talk about a lot, has been sort of the criticism of the market right now. Well, if we can start to get these earnings going a little bit so that the, sort of the E catches the P, if you will, it could be, we could continue to have a decent rally. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. So where would you put some new money uh, at this point, J.J.? Well, I do think, uh, you know, for those who are a little bit more conservative, 
you may want to wait until you see some of the financials uh, come out and see what they say. But I think if, if you have a time frame where you say, okay, for 2020, what's, your, what's one area of the market I do want to sort of focus on? I think there is opportunity in the big banks. All right. Talk to me about retail because we talk so much about some of the names. I mean, Carol and I spent a lot of time in part because we're, for different reasons, a little bit obsessed with it. Uh, Bed Bath & Beyond, uh, that was a tough beat, uh, to say the You're least. you right? Uh, I mean, it's an interesting one. But it's a fascinating it, it, sort of window in. What do you make of the world of retail right now? Uh, I think as, you know, a, a particular retail investor is the area you have to be the most careful of. Not because I think that it, it, it's not a good space or not because I, I don't think the uh, customer is doing well. Because I, I do think the consumer is doing very well. The problem is exactly what you just talked about. It's more than any other sector, in my opinion. It is individual name driven. Yeah. You know, you see a month, you talk Bed Bath & Beyond, you talk about Kohl's with, with some warnings, JCPenney. You know, when you see a healthy consumer, you're thinking, well, a company like Kohl's should be a net beneficiary of this overall. So, again, I, I just I, I feel that this area overall, it, like I said, big banks, you know, so that, that is cast kind of a wider net. When you say retail on something like this, it, you have to be so careful because it is the ultimate in the winners and losers, in my opinion. Uh, JJ, you did say the big banks, which are just getting ready to report all of their earnings uh, re results. Would you be buying ahead of um, the results in anticipation that uh, they're going to show us some pretty strong numbers for the last quarter of the year? Well, as I say, I think it, it, it kind of depends on your risk tolerance a little bit. And what I mean by that is if you're somebody who's willing to take a little more risk, sure. But if you're someone who, you know, is, is a little bit more, I need to see something first. You can wait the two weeks where you'll see most yeah. of the big banks. You may miss a little bit of the move, and I think one of the mistakes people make, Carolyn, that's a, such a good question because one of the mistakes I see people make is they don't know what their own time frame is when they go into invest. Mm -hmm. If your time frame is for the end of the year, you don't, as my father used to say, you don't have to be the first one to the party or the last one at the party. So, you know, you can wait a little bit. It really depends on your risk tolerance and your time frame for if you're just playing for earnings, which may not be the smartest, you know, that's, that's a tough game. Sure, you have to do it now, but I don't think that's what most people are going for. All right. Speaking of parties, just in the minute we have left, JJ, uh, talk to us about Apple. What a run that stock had uh, last year, but didn't start out so well, as you recall. How do you feel about that name now? So I'll tell you something interesting on that name. It's still the number one held name at our firm by our retail clients. They were sellers of Apple nine of 12 months last year. No so kidding. That it, yeah. So to me, that's very interesting. Because one of the things it does show is that people weren't afraid to take profits there. And I think as much as any other stock, the worry about tariffs was reflected synthetically through Apple. So so it's interesting, and it actually makes me happy because people are like, oh, people missed the move. I say, no, still the number one held stock. So people were taking off some risk on the way up to find right. different opportunities. And I just find that a really interesting behavior out of retail. I don't think that would have existed five or seven years ago. Yeah. Right. Buying Great and point. selling. The stock was up 86% this year. Remember Gene Munster saying yeah, about a year ago. Yeah, it was going to be the best performing thing. Yeah, yeah. and he was right. So right. fascinating. JJ Kenahan, great to catch up with you. Chief Market Strategist for TD Ameritrade, based in Chicago. Uh, joining us from New Orleans, eat a beignet, drink a hurricane for us while you're down there. Uh, really love catching up with him. Right, He's always trolley. got some good. Yeah. The trolley, really? That's what you do when you go to New Orleans? I did. All right. Oh, Carol. Oh, and some Carol. other things. And some other stuff. Just went to some cool places. 
Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.